What a great Memorial Day weekend crowd. I didn't know, I was driving here, I told Sam on the way here, I'm like, I don't know what to expect this morning, it's Memorial Day. There you are, good job, good job. Well, I'm so thankful to be starting this um, new series, and I'm hoping that it will be um, an encouragement, that it will bring encouragement and assurance as we consider our faith and who God is and what that means for us. I mentioned um, last week, last Sunday, about it being a significant week in the history of the church. It really was. Of course, we, we talked about um, the Ascension this past Thursday being Ascension Day. And also it was significant because on May 20th, the Council of Nicaea first convened in A.D. 325. So 1,697 years ago, this month. And that council was made up of hundreds of church leaders, bishops, convening in what is now modern-day Turkey from across the Roman Empire, coming together to settle doctrinal challenges to orthodoxy, to discuss organization and structure between and within churches to confirm the official date on the church calendar of when Easter would be celebrated each year, and then, of course, the major outcome of the councils of Nicaea and then later Constantinople was the co composition and affirmation of the Nicene Creed. And that's the first creed that we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks. But first, this week, this morning, what I want to do is look at two things, history and heresies. We look at two things, history and heresies. How do we get here? What brings us to the point of the Nicene Creed, both historically and as we consider the specific heresies that were being addressed. To put it in, in simple terms, the creeds set forth the basic beliefs of the church that have been handed down from earliest times by the apostles and those that they discipled as they fulfilled the Great Commission. It's what the New Testament refers to as the faith that once for all that was once for all delivered to the saints in Jude verse 3. The faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And so, as we consider the sermon last week and Jesus' commission that they would be witnesses, one of the things I mentioned was witnesses to what? And how? What did they witness to? And so let's look at the history of what we have seen and where it is going. Jesus is born into a Jewish family in the historic land of Judah, now Judea, even as uh, the Roman Empire has spread to include all of Palestine at this point in history. Luke tells us that he was born under Caesar Augustus in Luke chapter 2, verse one, in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And we know that Jesus was born there in Bethlehem. Matthew tells us that Jesus comes from the line of Abraham. So Jesus would have, as a faithful Jew, been taught and recited the Shema of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today 
shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Now, we know the Shema today because it was written down. I just read it. Jesus knew it because his parents told him. They said it to him out loud. Because their parents and their community had faithfully taught and passed on this tradition and doctrine. Orally and visually as well as in writing. And those are all valid ways and vital ways of passing on history and doctrine. Jesus lives his life proclaiming and bringing the kingdom of God. In Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 21, and he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And then over the next years, he demonstrates those words. Jesus carries out his ministry among Jewish disciples, speaking and teaching in Aramaic, the common spoken language of Jews in that region and within Roman-occupied Palestine. The common written language at this point among the Jews and others is Greek, which is why all of the Gospels and letters, the whole New Testament is written in Greek. It's also why the whole of the Old Testament has been translated into Greek two to three hundred years prior to Jesus being born. We know, just as we've seen over the last bunch, Jesus is tried under the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. And now, he has commissioned his disciples as witnesses. These disciples are still Jews. They're Jewish and will wrestle with what that means and, and, and as they now seek to follow the risen and ascended Lord. How does that flesh out? But they know their witnesses. Even though they don't have a lot of influence or power, they know that he said he will build his church. And they're going to live out the next 30, 40, and even 70 years working that out with the help of the Holy Spirit who comes at Pentecost just as Jesus promised, filling them and emboldening them to carry out their mission. And now it is time for the good news to spread, to go forward, for the witnesses to take it places outside of Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. We have Paul who is a prominent Jewish leader who Jesus meets and he is converted he becomes the apostle to the Gentiles. We have P- 
Peter, who's also traveling and witnessing as he's uh, wrestling with matters of how Jewish should we expect Christians to be. Remember Acts chapter 10 and his encounter with Cornelius and what foods were clean and unclean for the Christian to eat. And he realizes that God shows no partiality to the Jew over the Gentile and watches the Holy Spirit fall on all the Gentiles who heard the word of the Lord and believed. I briefly mentioned last week the Jerusalem Council. Look at, look at um, Acts chapter 15. Go ahead and turn to Acts 15. I'm going to read the first 11 verses there. Acts 15, starting with verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter, and after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now therefore... Why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through grace, through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. So you have this tension between what it means to be Jewish and Christian, and the church leaders want to know what is true, to discern and affirm together what is true? And so they hold counsel and they determine the truth. What is orthodox? Or, ortho meaning right and dox meaning opinion or belief. So what is right belief? And of course, we, we've, we have even more accounts and acts of right belief being taught as the faith delivered to the saints spreads. One particular account uh, that is relevant as we consider church history and where we're headed with the Council of Nicaea, we know from Acts that Philip met an Ethiopian eunuch earlier on in Acts chapter 8. Now think about that. This Ethiopian who believed in the God of Israel and owned at least a portion of Isaiah 53 having encountered Philip with his right belief, believed in Jesus, and being baptized is going to take the gospel 
back with him, and it's going to spread in Ethiopia and beyond. And we know that some of the earliest congregations and some of the representatives at the Council of Nicaea, nearly 300 years later, come from Africa. In fact, you are probably familiar with Augustine, one of Christianity's most important theologians. He lived in the fourth and fifth centuries and is from Hippo, which, which, which is modern Algeria today in northern Africa. But getting back to history as we have it in the book of Acts, Paul continues his witnessing to the gospel of Jesus through the Mediterranean, which is still under Roman Empire. Christianity is spreading as Rome is advancing. Yes, there's persecution of Jews, and by about 30 years after Jesus' death, persecution of this growing sect called Christians. But there are also advancements that help this message get carried along. Most of the ministry of the apostles is happening under the reign of Claudius. And Claudius ordered the construction of many new roads and canals and aqueducts, those things in this growing empire assisting the spread of the gospel. Now, tradition tells us that both Paul and Peter continued witnessing and both died in Rome during the reign of Nero, who came after Claudius. Nero began reigning in AD 54. The apostle John lived significantly longer than the other disciples. He wrote the gospel, his gospel account and his letters around A.D. 90, and probably died around A.D. 100. Now, I want us to have some cultural context here, and you might be thinking while I'm going through all of this, why so much history? Well, for context, but also I want to remind all of us, myself included, this is a reminder to me this week, the gospel is based on actual history. It's history. The Bible is a historical book. Yes, it's spiritual, and it teaches about how we can know God, but it's truth. Divinely inspired truth. It's history. We believe in a real person who really lived at a specific time and literally died. It's It's historical. It's history. And this is a time of of growth and flourishing in Rome, but it's also very politically volatile and increasingly hostile toward Jews and Christians now. Nero reigned until AD 68, and you're probably most familiar with Nero for beginning the persecution of Christians that would last for 250 years. Nero's reign and death essentially ignited a civil war. In fact, the year after Nero died is known as the year of four emperors. Four emperors in one year. In AD 69, Vespasian began his 10-year reign during which his son Titus led a siege against the Jews and the temple of Jerusalem was destroyed just as Jesus prophesied that it would be in Matthew 24. A pardoned and... uh, uh, excuse me, a, a pardon and lost my place, I apologize. A lot of what we know about this period comes from a former enemy of Vespasian. 
who's pardoned and pledges his allegiance to Rome, and that former enemy is who we know as the historian Josephus. I would imagine at least a handful of you or more have read his history. He recorded his Antiquities of the Jews, which is the only non-biblical text to reference Jesus, acknowledging him as a wise teacher crucified under Pontius Pilate, and is all more confidence that our history is true history. Titus rules for two years after his father, and then Domitian rules until AD 96, which is around when John writes the book of Revelation. Now, amidst, amidst all of this political volatility in Rome, the gospel is spreading. People are embracing faith delivered to, to them. How? How are they embracing the faith delivered to the saints? Through their message written down and then proclaimed in the churches that are being established in cities through all, through, all throughout the Mediterranean. Even as all these letters are being carried, read, memorized, and circulated, there are not an abundance of copies. Again, I mentioned this last, we are so blessed to have a Bible that's bound. They didn't have that. These letters are hand-carried by messengers, hand-delivered by trusted disciples, often read and interpreted for the churches by those who were entrusted to deliver them. 2 Thessalonians 2.15, So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us either by our spoken word or by our letter. The church leaders are gathering with people and reading to the community, and that's how the word is going forward. People rarely, if ever, have their own copies of the letters at this point. Think of the work of a scribe. It's tedious and costly, and so at most a common Christian might have a small portion of a scripture written on a parchment or a piece of pottery or, or an amulet or a coin, just small reminders of the right belief about Jesus is passed on to them by the saints. John is the last of the disciples who walked with Jesus to die. And so, John dies, and then what? What now? There's no written word in the hands of the people, what now? Because of the faithfulness of the apostles as Jesus' witnesses, the early church has developed what is known as the rule of faith or the tradition. Theologian Bruce Demarest describes it as brief summaries of essential Christian truths. Your early church fathers such as Irenaeus, Clement of Alexandria, Tertullian, all assume this rule of faith. It was an unwritten set of beliefs that had been passed down from the apostles and taught to Christian converts, a means of preserving the faith delivered to the saints. In the second century, Irenaeus described the rule of faith in this way, one God, the creator of heaven and earth, and all things therein by means of Christ Jesus, the Son of God, who 
because of His surpassing love towards His creation, condescended to be born of the virgin. He Himself uniting man through Himself to God and having suffered under Pontius Pilate and rising again and having been received up in splendor shall come in glory, the Savior of those who are saved and the judge of those who are judged and sending into eternal fire those who, are, who transform the truth and despise His Father and His advent. Now, if that sounds familiar, it's because that rule of faith was reformulated as the Apostles' Creed as well as the Nicene Creed. After the death of John, there are fruit, people, who the apostles have raised up, trained in the faith once and for all delivered to the saints, faith that does not contradict what their Jewish heritage taught them, but fulfills the law and demonstrates that prophecy is fulfilled in Jesus. And this is where some of those church fathers I mentioned pick up the mantle. Some of them, like Clement and Ignatius and Polycarp, they all write and reference Paul in their writings. So these truths are being passed on through word and letters read, likely through creeds recited, like those we see in uh, what will become the New Testament, as well as the rule of faith. Passed along, as I mentioned last week, like the game of telephone. And we know from Acts and other texts in the New Testament that the apostles and early church leaders warned against wolves coming in, false teachers coming in, and, and messing up the game of telephone. Acts 20, verses 28 through 30, Paul speaking to the Ephesian elders, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Paul writing in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Peter writing in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. And that's exactly what happens. The Gospels and letters in our New Testament are not the only writings circulating in the early church. There are false teachers and teachings. And that's the second thing we're going to look at this morning, is heresies. Two heresies that are being taught that needed to be addressed. The first heresy, beginning in the late first and through the second century, is Gnosticism. Gnosticism denied certain things that are core beliefs of Christianity. It, it denied that God created the material world. It denied that Jesus ever became a real human being. 
It denied that there will ever be a future resurrection of the body, and it claimed a need for a special mystical insight for you to be saved. The Apostles' Creed was purposefully addressing the heresy of Gnosticism. The portion of the Nicene Creed bolstered that. The other later heresy being taught that needed to be addressed was Arianism. In Alexandria in AD 318, an elder named Arius began publicly proclaiming his theory that Jesus was created by God and therefore not eternal or co-equal with God. Arius taught that while the Son was superior to the rest of creation, He was not of the same nature as the Father and therefore was subordinate to the Father. This teaching was incredibly dangerous because Arius believed that you could deny the deity of Christ and still happily proclaim Jesus is Lord. You could see the danger in that and how that would be appealing to many people. Arius even wrote a song that stated there was a time when he was not. Similar to the false teaching in Acts chapter 15, a council needs to gather to address this. The council of Nicaea meets for that very purpose. Arianism was vehemently rejected and condemned officially at the council of Nicaea. The Nicene Creed which resulted from that council is is probably the most famous and influential creed in the history of the church. It settled the question of how we Christians can worship one God and also claim that this God is three persons. Now, you may wonder again, why are we studying creeds? I want to mention here to begin to answer that We are not intending that this series will make us a church that recites creeds weekly. That's not the goal. That's not the purpose of what we're doing this summer. The purpose is to help us better understand the doctrines that we as Christians hold to as essential to saving faith and to look at how those truths have been preserved and passed on since the days of the early church. There are specific truths that unite us as believers around the globe, both today and throughout history. Christianity did not begin with us. Christianity didn't begin with us. And it didn't begin or even come to its fullest glory in the United States. We're seeking to also reaffirm our core beliefs through these creeds. That, that the word creed, the English word creed, comes from the Latin word credo, which means I believe. The creeds of the historic church are primarily theological. They deal with fundamental doctrines that constitute the Christian faith. They seek to affirm what Christians have always believed and are also by nature confessional. We, we say them. We believe this. Again, 2 Thessalonians 2.15, So then, brothers, stand firm and hold 
to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. In Jude, verse 3, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. That's what creeds are meant to accomplish. They're a means by which Christians confess what it is that they as a body of believers believe. And therefore clarify what it is that Christians don't believe. They attempt to hold out the brilliance of the truth against the darkness of error. Here's the thing. We have faith in Christ. Maybe maybe every single person in here would say that. That they have faith in Christ. Billions of people would say that throughout history and the world. But we must verify that we have not invented Christ according to our fantasies. The purpose of creeds was and is as if the authors of the creeds and confessions are saying to us, as Donald Fairborn and Ryan Reeves so wonderfully describe it, come and lay your faith down next to this pattern and see whether the images match or whether they reveal a fundamental difference between your impressions and the faith of our fathers. And so for the next few weeks, we're going to look at the theology, the true things about our faith and about God that the Nicene Creed proclaims and that the Scriptures affirm. To end our time this morning, prior to going into the Lord's Supper, I want to read for you the Nicene Creed. You, you should have gotten a copy when you came in. You could follow along or just read. But let me say this. As we prepare to go into a time where we take the Lord's Supper, the purpose of the Lord's Supper is a fellowship with the Lord. As we remember the truth of who He is and what He accomplished, It's for those who truly believe and joyfully proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. So let's go into it hearing these truths and seeking to embrace them together before proclaiming through taking the bread and the cup together. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again according to the Scriptures and he ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge both the quick and the dead whose kingdom shall have no end. And in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, 
who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets, and one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. Thank you for truth. So often, Lord, that I know I take for granted. We're tempted to just take it for granted that we have your word so readily available to us. And yet, it's a miracle. It's a miracle, Lord that you preserved for us through so many different means the truth, right belief, the gospel, the good news of the kingdom, the true word of Jesus Christ. Lord, I thank you Thank you that we can look at history and see the glory of your hand moving and working and providing and protecting, saving, embracing those who are lost. We pray that you would help, Lord. As we continue through this series this summer, Lord, help us. Help us to be encouraged. Help us to be built up in our faith. Help us to truly evaluate our faith, Lord. We would evaluate it according to the truth. According to the truth of who you are and what you've done and what you've spoken. Pray that you'd be glorified in our response to it, Lord. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.